Today's message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. Pastor Jason Swanson is our senior pastor here at RBC, and this message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning service times. Pastor Jason is currently in a series he's calling a walk through the book of Acts, Jesus at Work. Today we are in part nine of our walk through the book of Acts as Pastor Jason continues to unpack Peter's powerful preaching. Let's join Jason now in his sermon. Well, good morning once again to to Rancho Baptist Church. I am Pastor Jason, and I'm the senior pastor here, and I have the pleasure, the privilege of bringing God's Word Sunday after Sunday. In particular, recently we have begun a journey through the book of Acts. And... I've called this journey a walk through Acts, in particular the, the idea of Jesus at work. Many would say that this is the Acts of the Apostles, and, and, and I don't disagree. I, I actually believe too that, that it could be considered the Acts of the Holy Spirit. But what we have seen is that Jesus is still at work, that He is the one building His church, and we're going to see that again today as we continue our, our study through Acts chapter 2. And in what many people have described, have said, is the first sermon ever preached in the Christian church. The first sermon ever preached in Christ church. And that sermon was done by the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost, when Christ church was born. And maybe what I should do in, in, in starting off is to let you all know that this wonderful outline that, that was included in, in your bulletin is uh, it's a wonderful outline, but I'm just not going to get through point, past point one today. So I, I'm going to give you the, the fill in the blanks now, and you can fill those in, and then you can fill in the, the rest of your notes with just the truth and the gold nuggets that we're going to find in, in verses 29 to 32. But at some point we will see all, all three of these together in, in Peter's sermon first, the comparison. And, and that is what we're going to be looking at today. And that is the comparison of David to Jesus. The conclusion, Jesus is Lord, David is not. And we'll be looking at that in two weeks. And then finally, the, the call to action. What to do with this message and that is that they are to know that Jesus, whom you crucified, is indeed Lord. And by way of giving just a little bit of an, of an introduction to get everybody's minds kind of focused on, on, on where we're going to go today, I'd like to pose a question to you all. That, that question is, have you ever been compared to someone? Have you ever been compared to someone? Even when you were a small or recently, I'm sure we can... can all identify, at some point or another, you have been most likely compared to someone. Maybe it's an older sibling that, that you measured up to or you didn't measure up to. Maybe it's somebody in school or maybe somebody in work. And, and at times we see that, that, that comparisons can be helpful and, it, and at times they're not so helpful. And I remember when, when, man, I remember this vividly for a number of years in Papua New Guinea when we moved into our village we were actually the ninth family that had moved into our village to begin this work of church planting. 
among this, this tribe, among, among this people group. And for the first so many years, all that I heard about was Ron. And Ron was, was the, the missionary who had gone before us, that had learned the language, and then had left because of a terrible accident that they got in. And as I, as I showed up on site and I'd walk around with the people and I'd, I'd go fishing with them and I'd, I'd stumble upon some sort of new river that I'd never seen before and I'd ask them, what's the name of that river? They would inevitably say, oh, Ron knows. Ron knows the name of that river. And I, oh, okay. And then I'd ask them, oh, well, how do I say this? And am I saying this right? No, you're not saying that. Ron knows how to say that, right? And over and over again, I'd go to their houses and they'd pull out this cooking pot and they'd say, you know who bought this for me? You know who gave this to me? Ron. And I, no, you, Ron didn't give this to you. I know you just got this like a year ago. Ron did. What are you talking about? But I, I lived in this shadow for a number of years and, and I wish to say that my responses were always godly. No. Times I was like, stop talking about Ron. We don't want to hear about Ron anymore. But praise the Lord, one night, and I remember this vividly, I went to the village as I, as I often did at night, and I'd just cruise around from house to house, sitting down with the people, storying. That, that's, they didn't have television. They didn't have stores, so that's what they do. And I'd hang out and spend time with them. And I'd gone around probably about six different houses that night, and I was wrapping up and coming home. And as I was coming home, I, I this is kind of what I used to do. I'd walk underneath. See, all the houses are up real high. So I'd walk underneath the house and I'd just kind of hang out under their porch and kind of eavesdrop on what they were talking about. And, and I, and I ended up going back to the house, the first house that I'd gone to that night. And as I kind of was walking by, I heard them say something about Ron, then I heard them say something about Jason. That's me. And I'm like, huh. So I hang out and I start listening and they're like, yes, yes. Jason, do Jason's mouth is no longer heavy. He, he, he's speaking better now. You know what? I closed my eyes when he was talking to us tonight and he sounded just like Ron. <laughs> and you guys laugh. I was like walking on air. This, I have arrived. I, I am now living up to Ron <laughs> Lindsay. But you know the reality is, is I, I was still falling short. Because what I really desired above anything else was not to be compared to Ron. I wanted to go into the village and hear, hear them say, oh man, I couldn't even distinguish us from Jason. Jason sounds just like Bayam. Jason sounds just like Bayak. Jason sounds just like Yanni Wee. We, we can't tell when it's us and when it's him. And I'll just let you know that I never got to that place. But today what we're going to see is we're going to see a comparison. We're going to see a comparison made between Jesus Christ, the living God, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, and David. And we're going to see that, that although David is great, he fails in comparison to our living Lord and Savior. So turn with me to Acts chapter 2. And don't look at your outline. Because we're not going back to that outline. We're going to stay right here in the comparison. Because there is so much good truth here. And I just couldn't pass through it. Verses 29 to 32. 
Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this Jesus, that is what our lives are all about. This Jesus. Allow us to truly behold this Jesus this morning to grasp the significance of the risen Lord and Savior that we desire to worship, to live our lives for, to give glory to, and to share with others. Go before us now and allow Your Holy Spirit to make Your Word clear, understandable in everything that goes on now. Set me aside, Lord, and speak to our hearts through Your Spirit and through Your wonderful Word. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So the comparison, the comparison between David and Jesus. Verse 29, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. The, the first thing that you're, you're going to notice is, okay, last week, what did he do? He, he went through Psalm 16 and he, and he gave us a, a good picture of the Gospel. The life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. And now what he's going to do is he's going to unpack that. He's going to clearly explain what the meaning of those verses are. And in light of the fact that for so many years they always attributed these verses to David, he's going against the tide. And he recognizes that. And so he wants to pull them in. And and, and what you'll notice first is he calls them brethren. That's that's a compound, actually, of, of two words. On the one hand, brethren, and on, and on the other hand, men. And this is different what we've, than what we've seen before. If, if you just look over it at chapter 2, verses 22, he addresses them as men of Israel. If you turn back to, to 14, when Peter starts, he, he addresses them as the men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem. Now, now he's narrowing his focus. He wants to be specific. He wants to be personal in exactly who he's talking to. Why? So he could bring the whole crowd in. And so he uses this term, brethren. It's in a direct address. And, and, and what he is planning on doing is he's, he's trying to show them that, man, I view you as a brother. I view you as a sister. That we are one nation. That, that in aspect, what he's saying is, this is like a family greeting. Brothers and sisters... Those of you that are part of my nation, that are fellow citizens of my country, listen to what I'm saying. And and so really what he's doing, he's zeroing things in more in order to to maybe grab their their heartstrings and pull them in because he's he's really going to confine everything now to exactly where he wants to go, which is the conclusion that Christ is the Messiah. But notice what he says after brethren. Then he says, I may confidently say to you. Confident. To say something with, with this kind of confidence, it, it means to conceal nothing. 
It passes over nothing. It's an outspokenness. It's a frankness. And I, I actually like the ESV translation a little better than the New American Standard because the New American Standard leaves out something that's in the Greek that is the idea that it is possible. So, so literally, if, if you have an ESV, yours says this, and I think it's more accurate, accurate. It is more, it is possible to say with confidence. And I believe the reason why he's saying this is, is he's saying this is a good reasoning. This is a good sound understanding of what these verses are talking about. This makes sense. This interpretation of this psalm, that this is not talking about David, but this is talking about Jesus Christ, the Savior, this makes sense. This is reasonable. And then, just as an aside, let's remember who he's preaching to. He's not preaching to to RBC. He's, He's preaching to Jews that had just done what? That had just crucified the Savior. And no doubt, he, he might have been close enough that those that were the, the leaders of, of the Jews, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they, they might have been close enough to actually hear him. They, he might have been within earshot of the temple. And if that's the case, the very ones that handed Christ over to the Romans were there listening to him. And so because of that, Man, a lot was on the line. His own life was on the line, but you see him being fearless. You see him having this confidence. Why? Well, well, as I've mentioned over and over again, what we see is he's resting on two things. He's resting on God's Word as the ultimate authority, and he's resting on the power of the Holy Spirit, as well as Christ, his Messiah. And so what does he go to first? He says this, I may say confidently, to you regarding the what? The patriarch David. Now, I, I know that patriarch isn't a, a, a normal word that we use every day for you and I, right? We, we, we tend to talk about grandma, we talk about grandpa, but we, we don't talk about patriarchs, but the nation of Israel did. They, they get it. And, and what it is, is it's a, it's a prime ancestor of a national entity. Or more simply put, it's just it's the father of a nation. But generally, when you think of patriarch, you think of the big three. You think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You, you don't think of David. And yet the reality is, Peter doesn't go after com- comparing Christ with, with Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. He compares him with David. Why? Because David is the greatest king. And so that's who he goes after. And he's going to talk about a throne. He's going to talk about a kingdom. So it makes total sense for him to go after David. And David, no doubt, should be considered a patriarch. Why? Because he is the greatest king. Because of his exploits. Because of his accomplishments as king. He should be considered a great patriarch. And we're going to see later in in, in Acts chapter 7, verses 8 to 9, that actually the the sons of Jacob are are also called patriarchs. So it's not something just confined to, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then he says what? He says, the patriarch David. Is there importance behind the name David? Yes. Much importance. Not just in in, in the office and the fact that that he was the king and that he was a a man after God's own heart, but in the fact that in in, in the book of Samuel, in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, a characterization of David that is seen numerous times 
in 1 Samuel 16, verses 3, 6, 12 to 13, chapter 24, verse 6, chapter 26, verses 9 and 11, 16, 23, 2 Samuel, chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 19, what you see him referred to as the Lord's anointed. And, and this idea of being the anointed one actually also ties in with the Messiah. Because what the Messiah means is anointed one. And so as Peter is pointing them to David and using him as a comparison, what he's really doing is he's bringing in this idea of the Messiah. And, and that makes sense for them because this idea of the Messiah, it, it, it grew out of this ideology of a righteous king who would one day be like David. And that is exactly where Peter goes. So David is seen as a prefigure of the Christ, of the Messiah that will come, and yet he falls short, as we know and as we've talked about earlier. And so then where does he go? After naming who he is, showing who he is as far as being a patriarch in the country and being a man of provenance, a huge man, an icon, really. He then says this, that he both died and was buried. He's being extremely literal for a purpose and for a point. This passage wasn't supposed to be interpreted in some spiritual way. He's letting them know clearly David died and he was buried. But here's the big thing. David's burial and David's death was a permanent condition. It didn't change. Whereas Jesus' death and burial was not permanent. Yes, it did happen, but it was only temporary. And that's what he's going to now show us. And he's, he's going to get into it deeper. And look at what he says at the very end of verse 29. And his tomb is with us to this day. When, when I first started studying this, I no idea there was significance to to David's tomb. And how many of you have been to Israel? Some of you? And no doubt you, you probably saw David's tomb. If you go online, you, you, you can. They, they, they do tours of David's tomb to this day. It, it, it's something that is, that is considered, deemed one of the holiest sites in Israel, even today now. So to a certain extent, you can almost say the same thing. But for them, it was even more so. You know why? Because... Throughout time, there were things, there's just lots of action that happened at his tomb. King Herod actually tried to go in and, and take his body. And Josephus, the historian, says that miraculously a fire happened and kept them from going in there and, and, and opening up the tomb and stealing his body and whatever else is in there. And, and Herod was was so overwhelmed by it that he, that he then built a, a marble memorial to the tomb. And that marble memorial was still there at this time. And so no doubt when he said this, they're like, oh yeah, that's just right over there. And it shows the fact that, that David's tomb was undisturbed. And, and, and what's the implication? Christ's tomb is anything but undisturbed. It turned that world upside down, right? When they came and found that his tomb was empty. Because who could roll a stone that size? And then he, he appeared to so many. But we see that, that David doesn't measure up. 
He doesn't measure up in his death because death had mastery over him. He doesn't measure up in his tomb because his tomb is undisturbed. And he doesn't even measure up in his flesh because his, his flesh saw decay. He also doesn't measure up as a person or even in, in, in his title as we'll see in verse 30 next, which says this, And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. So it says, because he was a prophet. Now, now that verb was, that to be verb, doesn't seem like it's anything important, but there's a huge nuance of it in the Greek, which, which brings this idea of being, coming from an originating point. That there was a point in time where he became a prophet. And, and what does that speak to? That speaks to the fact that he wasn't a prophet forever. We could also say he wasn't a king forever. We could also say he didn't exist forever. But following the contrast and the comparison, what can we say of Christ? The complete opposite. That he has existed forever. That before he became incarnate, he was God the Son eternally existing as part of the triune God. Amazingly. And that what we will see is that He will reign as King forever. And look at what He says next. And so because He was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to Him with an oath, he uses these two words that kind of mean the same thing. He could have just said sworn and it has the idea of oath, but he, he used them both in, in order to emphasize the point that it was a certain thing that was going to happen. This is a, a total certainty that what God said was going to happen, that this promise, that this covenant that God makes with David was going to come to fruition because God had deemed it so. It's emphasizing the certainty of God's commitment that he will do what he said he was going to do. And, and what was that? Well, then he, he, he then goes into a terminology that, that's very close to what, what you see in Psalm 132, verse 11, actually. As he talks about to do what? What was this oath? It's to seat one of his descendants on his throne. A throne there is just simply a chair set aside for one of high status. And, and we all get it. We, we know what a throne is. It's where a king sits or queen and, and this and that, right? Well, I think we get it, but we do not get it as well as these hearers would have gotten it. Why? Because that they had been raised in a tradition of understanding kingship and thrones. And going all the way back to, to Genesis, chapter 41, verse 40, long before the kings ever came onto the scene, they were already being prepped. They were already being taught about the importance of a throne. As we see Pharaoh saying this to, to Joseph. Genesis 41.40 You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. And then this idea of, of, of this promise, of this covenant, is seen fully in, in 2 Samuel 7 verses 18 to 17, where the prophet Nathan comes to David. And this is what, this is what Nathan says to him. He says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom 
forever. Now we know when he says that establish the, the kingdom forever that he can't be talking about David or Solomon. And in the, the first half of that verse, he shall build a house for my name. No doubt he's talking about Solomon because David did want to build a house for God, right? But God told him, no, you can't because you're a man of war. You have blood on your hands. So your, your son will, will build this house. But then he also gives David this promise of this blessing that someone will come who will be on the throne of this kingdom forever. But I also believe that this idea of building a house in God's name could be talking about Christ. Because that is indeed what He does for all those that believe in Him. And it says this in John 1.12, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become what? Children of God. Even to those who believe in His name. But there's other places in the Old Testament that, that talk about thrones. First Kings 2.45 But King Solomon shall be blessed and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. Isaiah says it like this, There will be no end to the increase of his government or of, his, or, or of peace. This is in Isaiah 9.7. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. David's referred to as many things, but never as the Lord our righteousness. This is talking about the coming Savior. This is talking about the Christ. And we see this coming all the way through to, to the time of Jesus as well. That this idea of a kingdom and somebody sitting on a throne and reigning forever. Listen to what Gabriel says to Mary in, in Luke one thirty two. He will be great. And He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father, David. Very clear. And, and I believe that speaking of the throne, no doubt entails this idea of the kingdom once again that we've already seen in Acts. In chapter 1, we saw it right from the start. And I believe what Peter is trying to communicate is he's trying to convince his listeners that unlike David, who was anointed king by Samuel, only to wait years and years, right, to become the king. I mean, he was anointed by Samuel, but he didn't become king right away. He had to serve under Saul. He had... He had to escape Saul. He had to hide from Saul. And he had to wait for Saul to actually be killed before he could become the king. Well, unlike that, what happens with Christ? He's greater and better than David. He becomes king right away. And the, and the way that we know that is, okay, he's not fulfilling everything that these verses in Jeremiah and Isaiah and King, First Kings talk about. Because at one point future, he will come and He will establish His kingdom here on this earth. But remember where He went. After His resurrection, He ascended and went to where? The right hand of the Father. And at the right hand of the Father, what does He do? He sends the Holy Spirit. And so there is the idea that right now Christ is reigning. It's just that it hasn't come to complete fulfillment yet. Whereas David, he had to wait. No, Christ went right in. 
But you, you know what's even more amazing than, than that is what David says next. Because, yes, he understood that, that this Messiah was going to be sitting on the throne forever and, and it was going to be related to David. But he also knew that this Messiah, that this Christ was what was going to be raised from the dead. Look at verse 31. He, referring to David, looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. So he goes back to the previous verses that he had just preached on. For us, it was a whole week ago that we went through 20, 25 to 28. For them, they just heard it. And he goes back to, to those verses, and yet this time he kind of tweaks things a little bit. He he. Adds a couple little differences. The first thing is he doesn't say the Holy One like he did earlier. Right? You you don't see verse 21 where it says, or allow your Holy One to undergo decay this time. Instead, he he gives a name to the Holy One. He says it's Christ. And instead of of attaching flesh to living in hope, he he attaches flesh with not decaying. And and even further, there's a nuance in in the Greek that you could actually see, okay, he doesn't use the future tense anymore. He uses a tense that that could be interpreted as as this happening right now. That Christ is reigning right now. But what does it say? It says first, he looked ahead to see in advance, to foresee with an eye to the future, to have seen something or someone beforehand or prior to an event in question, before it happens to see that person. We look back. He, by faith, looked forward in an amazing way and as a prophet looked forward. And what did he do? He looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of Christ. Again, this this word Christ means the anointed one. Pointing back to, to, again, this comparison between David as the king and the Messiah as a king that would reign forever, that would reign supreme. God's specially chosen one or the expected one in in the sense of one to whom everyone was looking for help and deliverance. This is who they were waiting for. And this is the one whom they crucified. This is the one whom they missed. This is so huge. And he's preaching this to them. And he's trying to connect the dots. And and what does he say? Nor did his flesh suffer decay. We we talked about this last week. And and I've just been mulling this over all week. And I really believe that I still don't understand the true significance of the resurrection. I recognize that our Christian faith is different than so many other religions in the world. Why? Well, different than all of them because we serve a risen Savior. We preach a risen Savior. But do you recognize that there are other people in the Bible that were raised? Right? There there are. And you want to know who they are? Thanks for asking. There's ten different groups. And actually, nine of them are people and then one of them is a whole group that are talked about in Scripture that are raised. And they basically happen in two time spans. 
They don't happen in the time of Moses with all the miracles that he did. They happen in the time of Elijah and his successor, Elisha. And then they happen in the time of Jesus and his successors, the apostles. And that's it. You don't see it happening any other time. And I believe that's significant. And first we see Elijah in 1 Kings 17.22 where he raises a widow's son from the dead by lying on top of this boy three times and crying out. and He gets life back. Elisha does the same thing with a Shumanite woman, her son. And just like Elijah, Elisha lays over the boy. And that's in 2 Kings 4.32-36. Then we got this really weird account in 2 Kings 13.20-21 that I didn't even heard about before. Elisha dies and they take his bones, his body, and, and, and they bury them. Some marauders come at another time and one of their marauders dies. They don't know what else to do with this guy. So they take his dead body and they throw it. And you know where it lands? On top of Elisha's bones. Just landing on top of his bones raises him from the dead. It's in Scripture. I didn't make that up. Second Kings 13, 20-21. And then from there we go on to, to the next four resurrections. They're, they're, they're all done by Jesus. Jesus brings back to the back to life the only son of a widow woman from Nain in Luke 7, 11 to 18. He brings back to, to life the young daughter of, of Jairus. And that's found in Mark 5, 35 to 38. And then we all know about Lazarus in John 11. And then we get to turn with me here to this one because we have to read this one. Matthew chapter 27, 52 to 53. And, and this is. I would say Jesus raises these guys from the dead. Chapter 27, verses 52 to 53, but, but I'll start at 51 so that we can kind of have some sort of context as to when this is happening. Because this is happening, or this is stated when Jesus is on the cross and, and all these things that are happening while He's on the cross. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. I don't know about you, but maybe you just skipped over those verses. <laughs> Can't explain it, so I give up. Okay, I, I, I'll just let you know that, um, yeah, you can send me emails, but uh, I'm totally limited on this one and I will let you know first, I do not know who these guys are. Their names aren't mentioned, so I cannot tell you that it was this person or that person. It was obviously Old Testament saints because that's what it says. I cannot tell you what kind of bodies they had because it doesn't tell us. I cannot tell you where these guys went after this. About the only thing I really can tell you is they were raised, they were Old Testament saints, and I can tell you when it happened according to verse 53. And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection. That's huge! They didn't beat Jesus. <laughs> he beat them. Why? Because He's the first. And so to speak, maybe the reason why it's mentioned during His death on the cross is because the death of Christ is the one that paid for sin. That paid for the death. But I don't believe that the doors of death were blown open until His resurrection. And that resurrection is what blew everything apart and, and revealed that S Satan does not have power over death. Only Christ does. Yes, amen. 
And so for all the things that I don't know, I do know that. That this happened after Christ raised from the dead. And this was a testimony testifying to who He was and how important this day was and how important His death was and that nothing had happened like this ever before. But that's not the only resurrection. We don't know how many there were. The other ones we see are Peter and Paul. And we're going to see these later in the book of Acts. In chapter 9, Peter resurrects a, a church woman named Tabitha. And then Paul, and I'm sure you guys have heard this one, raises Eutychus from the dead because Eutychus fell asleep while he was preaching and fell out the window. And then the last one that we see is, is, is Paul himself being resurrected when he's being, been stoned by an unruly mob in Lystra. And that's in Acts 14. I say all that to say that all of these accounts, except for the Old Testament saints, because I don't know what happened with them, and so I can't really speak to that, but all the other ones... These resurrections were totally different than Jesus's. Why? Because they were temporary. They were resurrected only to die again. Every one of them died again. Lazarus is not with us. He died after he was raised. Jesus Christ, totally different. When he raised, he never died again. That is the hope that you and I have. Praise the Lord. Oh, praise the Lord. Because we serve a risen Savior. We preach a risen Savior. We worship a risen Savior. And wrapping things up in verse 32, Jesus was different. Going back to Acts. If you're still in Matthew 27 like me, you can turn there now. This Jesus, God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. This is the first time he actually says His name. Up to this point, He's been using Christ, 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 Christ. Now He brings everything together and He connects all the dots and He says, yes, this is what I am telling you. That what Psalm 16 was talking about, the Messiah that would come, that death would not be able to conquer. He was indeed for sure a man. And this man, it was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And He's connecting everything. And allowing them to see that God raised him up again. That it was God doing this wonderful, wonderful work. And then he says, to what? To which we are all witnesses. I'd love to say that I knew exactly what that meant. In our village, in our language, we could do a we that was inclusive, that included all of us, or we could do a we that was exclusive. Meaning that I could say, okay, those of us in the middle group, we're going to go out to lunch. We at exclusive. I'm excluding all of you out there, which I wouldn't do because my wife is on this side. <laughs> but then there's another we that would include everybody. And I, I don't know. Could it be that not only the apostles were eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection, but many of those that he was preaching to were? I believe that is the case. So, so the logic of the argument that, that Peter is presenting, it, it, it's simple. It goes like this. One, the Scripture... It teaches that the Messiah will raise from the dead. Two, Jesus was raised from the dead by God. Conclusion, point. Therefore, Jesus is what? He is the Messiah. He is the one promised to David. And so how would I summarize this? This is how I would summarize what we've gleaned today. Which I just think are... These are nuggets of jewels of 
from God's Word that, that we should tuck in our hearts and remind ourselves of. One, David's death and burial was permanent. Jesus' death and burial was temporary. Two, David was a prophet, king who sat on the throne temporarily. Jesus serves as priest, prophet, king for all of eternity. Three, David recognized his flesh would decay, but he looked ahead to the Messiah whose flesh would never decay. And granted, David will be raised and, and, and have a resurrected body. But the reality is that Christ is greater and, and better than David. So what do we do with this? What, what's something that points to ponder, something for you to chew on, to, to take with you this week and, and consider and think about three things. This week, let's consider Peter's boldness in the midst of serious opposition where he could have been killed. You and I, we want to share Christ with our next door neighbor. It's not like he's going to take you to the police. And yet, it, it's a difficult thing, right? Let's pray that the Lord would, would give us boldness. Ask the Lord to reveal areas in your life where you can be more bold for him. Two, consider Jesus' resurrection in light of all other religions in the world who have no risen Savior. How does the fact that we serve a risen Savior motivate you towards godliness? and give you a greater hope for what lies ahead. And third, consider the empowering of the Holy Spirit who allowed Peter to preach a sermon like this one. What areas in your life do you need to rely more on the Holy Spirit's enablement and power to overcome sin in your daily walk with Christ? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank You that Your Word is so clear that as good and as great as David was, Lord, he is nothing in comparison to Christ. For Christ's tomb is empty. His life was perfect and His reign will be eternal. Give us boldness to share You with others that You might grant the gift of repentance to many and that you would bring them into your kingdom that we might enjoy the eternal kingdom together with them. Just go before us now as we leave here. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.